0: Blog Talk Radio. 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and I'm glad to see a number of people here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio today. Tim in the chat room says that the sound is good, so I'm glad to hear that. As I was you know, saying my little spiel here in the intro, I felt a tiny little bit of squeak in my voice. I said, where is that coming from? I haven't noticed that I have any kind of a cold or anything, but it it has been kind of a, a crazy but good week for me over here. So who knows? I might end up with a little bit of squeaky voice or something. It certainly won't be like that other a few weeks ago when I was interviewing James Valiant and had absolutely no voice. We're going to be in good shape here. So as usual, go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out the program notes for today. I finally settled on the title. I knew for a few days that I wanted to do something about the arbitrary, and I decided to call it the Reign of the Arbitrary. Uh, and if you again, if you go to don'tletitgo.com, you can check out all of the program notes. Before we dive in and get started on kind of the body of the show, where I've got. Uh, What I'm going to do is talk about a number of stories where I saw the arbitrary, and I'm going to explain what that is, the arbitrary. I saw it leap out of the pages of the news this week in in a few stories. So we are going to talk about that. But before we get started on that, I thought you just, you know, should have a little bit of fun. And a Facebook friend, Chip Joyce, was sharing this link around There's a website called Uproxx or whatever. I'm not even going to click on it right now because it's very heavy in the little ads moving around and things scrolling over and whatever. You know, when I set up these program notes, what I try to do is copy and paste the headlines and some websites make it so difficult to copy and paste those darn web uh, headlines because they have all this stuff moving over it or you think you're clicking on, you know, to copy and paste. And before you know it, you've clicked on an ad because they moved an ad in front of you before you could click on the. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And Uproxx is one of these. But they do have a nice overview of some of the people playing this great little game on Twitter. And the game is Trump Explains Movie Plots. So if you go there, you can see a number of examples. What I want to know is whether anybody in the chat room can guess the movie that I was describing in my contribution to this Twitter game called Trump Explains Movie Plots. And by the way, if you haven't played any Twitter games, I think you're missing out a little bit because it really is fun sometimes to get in on these little games. So here the whole idea was to, within a tweet length, which is pretty short, Explain a movie plot in the style of Donald Trump tweets. So here's mine. Mine is only a journalist would have to live his day over and over again, dozens of times before he gets it right. Loser. (laughs) So that's Trump. Um, But tell me what movie he's describing there. I'm sure you got. Yeah. Okay. Rogers got it there in the chat room. Yes, that is Groundhog Day hope I didn't give any spoilers To people that's quite an old movie one that I have Seen many times And really find heartwarming But yes you know Trump would love To get a dig in on the Journalists the journalists he keeps talking About are not his friend even though they give him Tons of free media And it's one of the reasons that he's doing so Well um, But yeah why why am I Giving you the, the Twitter game Um Things are just bad right now, politically speaking. Some of the stuff we've got in the you know the show today is just horrible. Uh, it's funny, my my mother coined the terms revulsifying and disgustipating that I've sometimes used here on the show, and and I also use throughout social media. And some of my friends are starting to pick up and use these terms as well. So my mom would be very happy, you know, kind of it, her uh, legacy is living on right through through my friends. But I mean, it is just so bad. And sometimes you just have to have some fun with how bad this is. I don't know if Trump actually has a chance anymore to be president. I don't know what to believe, but it's possible that this guy would be president. And it's a little bit horrifying because we have absolutely no idea what to expect. And in fact, we think that he might have some demagogue tendencies to him. So you know, that it's him or Hillary right now, basically, is what's going to happen in what is it like 10 weeks or 11 weeks from now? One of those is going to be elected and then we're going to be waiting to see if, you know, when they take office, it's, it's scary. It's bad. And so, yeah, have some fun with this. Have some fun with this. Jay in the chat room says, yeah, I remember disgustipating from a long time ago. Yeah. It, it? I mean, I don't think my mom coined them, but my mom used them all the time. Revulsifying and disgustipating usually in tandem like that. And it's, one of the cool things that I remembered about her and then bring on, but it's just, you find it so apt these days. Sometimes there are news stories that are so bad that I don't think the terms revulsifying and disgustipating are near nearly enough to describe them. I don't even bring them in because it's just, it's wimpy compared to the way that you should be describing them. But yeah, it, it, it is just terrible. Have some fun with it. Uh, some people were saying about this game, you know, what does it say? That this is what we 're reduced to, you know here's the Republican nominee, and we're going around playing these games, and he hasn't even taken office yet. It's typical to make fun of a president after he's taken office, but before he's even there, there is just so much to ridicule from this guy who ridicules everybody else, so in any event uh, do do have a little fun with that. Uh, that being said, I want to get started into the main body of the show. As I said, the title for today is The Reign of the Arbitrary. And we are seeing the use of the arbitrary and it's been going on for a long time. I think it's just this week, a few examples of it happened to pop out at me. This is, you know, my mind works in pretty random ways. I don't have a master plan of the shows that I'm going to do even for the next week, right? It, It just happens to be what catches my eye and what I'm thinking about in this week is what you're subjected to when you come here and uh, and listen to my show. But you know I was looking at these different stories and seeing different examples of the arbitrary being used in the media and in government, and they just expect us to accept it, and uh, you know that we they expect us to give us credence. So let me get into what the arbitrary is, and if you really want a good statement of what the arbitrary is. You go back to Leonard Peikoff's awesome book, which is called Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, where he lays out in hierarchical form the essential uh, content of the philosophy of, of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. And there's a few pages on what is called the arbitrary. So let me give you an idea of what the arbitrary is. I'm reading from page one sixty-four. And yeah, I don't read from books too often on this show, but I'm gonna read a little bit here. So so bear with it. He says an arbitrary claim is one for which there is no evidence, either perceptual or conceptual. Okay? So that's the thing to keep in mind. These arbitrary claims are claims that people put forth and they provide for those claims no evidence at all, absolutely no evidence either perceptual evidence or conceptual evidence. Now, continuing with paragraph here, he says, it is a brazen assertion based neither on direct observation nor on any attempted logical inference therefrom. For example, a man tells you that the soul survives the death of the body or that your fate will be determined by your birth on the cusp of Capricorn and Aquarius or that he has a sixth sense which surpasses your five or that a convention of gremlins is studying Hegel's logic on the planet Venus. If you ask him why he offers no argument, I can't prove any of these statements he admits, but you can't disprove them either. Right. That's what they often say. Yeah, I can't prove my statements, but you can't disprove them. And therefore, because you can't disprove them, there's somehow an obligation on you to give the statements credence in some way. So what you want to do is, yeah, yeah, just Gina in the chat room says, arbitrary claims, Trump comes to mind. Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of other people come to mind as well. So let's go ahead and go to the first example of a story. I mean, a lot of these news stories are interesting in and of themselves for their own content. But again, the things that were jumping out at me this week were the arbitrary assertions. So the first story, New York Times headline: First-degree murder charge added in the killing of the Queens imam and the aide. You probably heard of this story of the, as far as I could tell, point-blank shooting of an imam and his aide in Queens recently. This story is a follow-up to that story published on August 16th, and it says that the Queens District's Attorney office on Tuesday. Upgraded the charges against a man man accused of gunning down an imam and his assistant on a sidewalk, adding a single count of first-degree murder for an attack that a prosecutor described in court as a, quote, cold-blooded and premeditated assassination. So this is on Tuesday, the man, Oscar Morell, made his first appearance in Queens Criminal Court since his arrest on Saturday He's accused of approaching the imam and his assistant from behind, shooting them execution style. And then it says, um, you know, they haven't determined the motive for the attack, but they're describing it as, quote, a most horrendous and desp- despicable act, end quote. And then they describe it, you know, what, what he did, how many bullets and all this stuff, right? And then, uh, you know, he's being ordered held without bail. And, um, then, you know, they talked about the, the, you know, weapons and all this stuff. Okay, then I'm skipping down. It says, prosecutors added the first-degree murder charge, which carries a maximum penalty of life in prison without parole because the attack was believed to be, quote, the intentional killing of two individuals during the same transaction, end quote. Okay? And they say pursuing such a charge is an unusual step, typically reserved for cases like the killing of a police officer. So they talk about examples of this in recent years because, you know, they're doing uh, some, some other ones, you know, of of multiple killings, but mostly it's for police officers. And so when you read this and you say, okay, they don't even really know the motive yet, but they're adding this first degree murder charge, taking this unusual step that's usually reserved for cases like killing police officers, the, you know, the substance of this story that could get you kind of at least interested to follow it and see what's going on is that why are they taking this unusual step? Would they be taking this unusual step if, for example, it was a, um, you know, like a, a rabbi, for example, or a priest? Would they be taking that unusual step? Um, somehow, I think, no, they would not be. Um, yeah, in the chat room here, they're they're uh, following my story here. Okay, um, sorry, I got a distraction there because somebody actually tried to call me with my dog bark ring. So I'm sorry about that distraction. Um, yeah, so so why are they doing this? You know, uh, would they be doing it if it was a rabbi or a priest, or is this part of De Blasio's reign in New York? You know, where he is, as far as we can tell, very pro-Muslim. And so because it's the killing of an imam, they're, you know, adding this heightened penalty, even though they wouldn't necessarily do the same for the killing of a rabbi or priest. This is speculation, right? But this is the kind of thing that occurs to you when you read this story at first, you know, what's going on. And, you know, is it arbitrary for me to speculate that we could talk about that in a second. But let me tell you um, what the news is doing with this that that struck me as, as arbitrary. They say. Uh, And I'm quoting from the article here. They say, while the motivation for this violent act is still unclear and continues to be investigated, one of the possible motives being explored is whether this was a hate crime, Mr. Brown said. Regardless of whether a hate crime had been committed, he added, quote, the crime will be vigorously prosecuted and we will seek the most serious penalties that our laws allow. Now, the assertion that this is a hate crime right um is being thrown around and it's being repeated here in this new york times article they say many in the bangladeshi community who live in the area around ozone park have argued that the attack on saturday was a hate crime because why the men were dressed in religious garb that's that's the only argument that they have so if you kill somebody dressed in religious garb, therefore it must be a hate crime. You know, we can leave aside, for example, the fact that maybe we don't think that a hate crime is even a valid category in the law. That in law, what we should do is we should just prosecute based on whether it's the intentional killing of someone else, the standard common law definition of murder, or murder in the first degree, right? But instead, they have this weird thing called hate crime That if it's motivated, not just by hate, right? Because not any old hate will make it amount to a hate crime, but it's the hate of certain favored groups by the left, by the politically correct, because they're a member of that group. So here, hate crime because it's an imam. So if anybody kills an imam, it must be a hate crime. And this is before they know anything about the motive. As far as I can tell, I mean, they're they're not saying anything about this guy, what his connection to the imam is, anything like that. They're just throwing around the words hate crime, hoping that it's going to stick in your mind a little bit. There is nothing that they're giving here in the way of evidence. There's people in the community who have argued that it's a hate crime. Why? Because they're dressed in religious garb. That doesn't necessarily make it that. I mean, and we don't know anything about the guy that he has any particular thing against this religion. Um, but nonetheless, they're saying, oh, well, it's possible that it's a hate crime. Well, maybe you say, okay, well, they're only saying it's possible. So is that okay for them to do if they say something is possible with no evidence at all? And as we're going to see as we get more into the arbitrary, not even that, but this, you know, this, this is the first example that I saw jump out at me in the news where they say, okay, well, you know, this could be a hate crime, you know, notwithstanding the, the substance of the news anyway, the idea that they're elevating to this first degree mur- you know, murder charge in the unusual step, it's that issue of calling it potentially a hate crime without providing any evidence for this, and we see the media very eager to do this. We see some people in the government in New York City eager to stick this label Hate crime, or at least the potential of hate crime, onto this for some reason, probably to placate the Muslim community. Um, so that is the first example. I'm going to go over to the chat room at Blog Talk Radio and see. Hate of a protected class, says Arjun. Is that it? Yeah, you know, hate of some sort of protected class. And it's no coincidence that protected class has the initials PC. Because that's exactly what it is. The protected classes are people who those who you know, are polit- politically correct would think should be protected. <laughs> Jan in the chat room says, it's possible that Trump would be a good president. Blank out the fact that we have absolutely no evidence that he would be. And it is really true. I think that a lot of people who are going with Trump, they're going with pure emotional. You know, I had a whole show on hope where I talk about you know, what a rational basis for hope would be. I don't know that you have any, you know, rational basis for hope that Trump is going to be a good president. You can wish, but is the wish based on any valid expectation is is another thing. So no, I would, I would say that that's also an example of the arbitrary, but yeah, so that's the first concrete example that I have. Um, Then, The next example that I have here is this $400 million payment to Iran delayed as prisoner leverage. Now, we can get very upset about the whole substance of this particular story, right, because it very much looks like this $400 million cash payment to Iran is a ransom right it is a ransom for the release of hostages it definitely looks like this and yet we have carney i mean not carney i keep calling him carney carney resigned it's everest sorry um i mean i'm not everest it's ernest what am i doing okay i'm sorry you guys um these guys are all interchangeable to me these stooges that have to go up there and lie for our president yeah so it's josh ernest is the current stooge And he's the one who actually got grilled in a press conference the other day, a press briefing that he was doing. I've got the link to that press briefing over at the blog at DontLetItGo.com. And what you need to check out there is you need to check out the stretch of it from a little bit after 38 minutes all the way up to about 45 minutes or so. There is a journalist sitting in the audience who very patiently just grills Ernest and keeps saying, you know, look, this is looking very much like a ransom payment. It's the whole way that the payment was made, the timing of the payment, you know, all of this. And and Ernest just tries to explain it as, um, you know, first of all, we don't have a banking relationship with Iran, and by the way, we told you all about this deal, the one point what was it, one point seven or one point three billion or whatever it is, that is you know, being given as part of the whole package of the Iran nuclear deal, right? Um, He's saying, you know, we told you all this before. We're so transparent. Um, And if anybody is asserting anything else, it's just because they are biased. He's basically trying to say that the claims of the people who are criticizing this deal that those claims are arbitrary, right? He's trying to say that there's nothing to it, that they're they, they are not giving anything at all. And so my question for you is, do you think he's right, right? You know, he says, look, you know, we have as part of this deal, you know, that we're giving the 1.7 billion and this is just part of that money. And, you know, we happen to pay it in cash because we don't have these uh, banking relations with Iran. And so there's nothing there, You know, he's trying to say there's nothing there, Ernest says, that is suspicious. There's nothing that would make you think it's actually a ransom payment. The idea that it's a ransom payment, it's a completely arbitrary assertion of the very biased critics of the Iran deal in the Republican Party, like Ed Royce and other people, right? Or, he says, alternatively, or not just alternatively, but and— uh, the idea that it's a ransom is also being promoted by the hard right-wingers in the Iranian government and clergy, right, because they are very excited to go, ha-ha, we got a ransom payment from the United States. That makes us look really bad, right? Um, and if this is an, a ransom payment, and I think, you know, and I'm giving it away, right, but I think there's a reason to think that there is. I don't think this is a completely arbitrary assertion, Um you know the, that there, there's something ransomy about it uh, that I'll talk about in a second. But you know it it you know opens the door for Iran to do this again in the future. People have an incentive now to capture and hold hostage more Americans because we are giving in. We're negotiating. We're giving them something for it. If this is, is indeed a ransom payment, it's it's a big concern and. He, you know, Ernest is just blowing this woman off and she is so patient and persistent and saying, look, no, it seems like there is actually something here above and beyond what you told us. And he's saying, no, you know, the fact that you now learned that it was a plane load of cash that arrived in the middle of the night and that the timing was delayed so that the hostages were released first and all this, you know, no, it's not related at all. And you shouldn't think that there's any evidence at all that it's a ransom. Uh, what do you guys think here in the chat room? What's your thoughts on what evidence there is that there is a ransom payment? Arjun in the chat room is talking about the fact that you shouldn't want to compromise with the Islamic Republic. And of course, that is uh, you know, the big picture. We should not be making these deals. Circumstantial. Yeah, we shouldn't have a negotiation with terrorists. Let me let me tell you the, you know, the one thing that I thought was, you know, an actual piece of evidence that Ernest has not answered, right? The fact that this payment was made in cash, and he tried to say there's no difference between the payment being made in cash or the payment having been wired from some account in the United States to some account there in Iran. And there is a huge difference, right? Because if it's cash, then the cash can then be dispersed and it would be a lot harder to track what happens to that cash. Now, there are means to track it. You've got serial numbers on the banknotes or whatever it is, right? So there's some ways to do this, but I'm doubting you're going to be able to track cash in the Middle East. And and then, of course, here, wasn't it paid like part in euros and francs and something else? I don't even know that, you know, all this. but. Uh, you know, If you do it by a wire transfer, then all the subsequent transfers and everything else can be tracked through the whole banking system, whereas with this, it's not. So what does that mean? That means that this cash can be handed over to whoever was responsible for the capture and everything else of these hostages. It can actually be used as that sort of payment and go untraced. And that would make it a lot more like a ransom payment than if it had been done through a wire transfer. And, of course, the timing and everything else is suspicious. But, you know, there is something about the way the payment was made in cash that itself lends evidence to this idea that it was a ransom payment. Fiona <laughs> says I'm surprised that Western Union wasn't thought of. Yeah, do they even have Western Union over there? Yeah, cash of various various currencies. Um <laughs> Ernest, what's his first name? Yeah, Josh Ernest <laughs> uh, Yeah, Josh, Josh, yeah, Josh Ernest So he's joking and he's not Ernest it's, it's really sad, yeah, so that that is actually Ernest Arguing that the critics of Obama are making An arbitrary assertion when in fact They aren't, so he's trying to use Sort of the, the weapon of the arbitrary. Now he wasn't explicit about it. I'm pulling that out. You can watch clip bias of these people, that there's nothing there, that Obama administration was completely transparent, and that the way that this transaction uh took place, given the fact that we don't have a banking relationship with Iran, that there's No evidence at all for this ransom Theory and I'm Right there with the journalist I'm saying yes There is something that The White House needs to answer Here it is not just Plain politics Uh, Ted Cruz Had a post on Facebook also where they're asking Certain questions that they think the White House Needs to answer and I completely Agree with this right so uh, You know here's Ernest Asserting uh, that there's the arbitrary going On here and it is not an example Of the arbitrary there is Some evidence that this is a ransom arrangement. Now, listen to in the New York Times piece on this, right on this whole transaction, um, that they're trying to argue that it's not ransom at all. So let me go ahead and skip down to the the key paragraph. Actually, if I can't find the key, key key paragraph, I'm gonna have to go to my Facebook post on this. Um, essentially, what they say in here, and I'm going to try to still find the paragraph. Um, they try to say that look, we would have had to pay this money back to them anyway. That it is not ransom. That we would have owed them this money, right? Um, it says administration officials said it was the first installment of the 1.7 billion, et cetera, um, and what the New York times argues in its piece is that, yeah, you know, we would have had to pay that to them anyway. It is not ransom at all. We would have owed it. Why? Because years ago when the Shah was in power, right? Years ago when the Shah was in power, we had some sort of an arms deal with them and we didn't deliver the arms because then of course the revolution and all that happened afterwards. And so we would have owed the money. We would have owed them the money. We would have had to pay it. Um, yeah, so it says, uh, this is the the key paragraph in the New York Times article. They say, in fact, it appears that the money was not a ransom payment. And then there's a semicolon. Love, semicolons are so noncommittal, it's awesome. I mean, sometimes I like a semicolon to, you know, just break the thought because, You just, you need that discontinuity. Um, Often after a semicolon, you'll have a full clause and grammatically you need one, whatever. But the semicolon, you don't know what the relationship is between the clauses that come before and, and what comes after. So this is interesting. So they say, in fact, it appears the money was not a ransom payment, semicolon. Sooner or later, the United States would have had to pay Iran back for the military goods it never delivered. Okay. So I say sooner or later, we've had to pay Iran back for the military goods it never delivered. This is, I'm asserting, I'm thinking this is an arbitrary assertion. And let me give you an argument for why I'm telling you this is an arbitrary assertion, right? Um, what, is, what is the argument that they hope we have in our minds for this, right? Because New York Times, then they just go on to something else. They say in the recent week of stories, recent uh, series of stories, Wall Street Journal established that the plane load of cash was time to ensure the American citizens, whatever. Um, so they're just starting to discuss the argument that it is a ransom payment, but they never talk about why we really would have had to pay back Iran for the goods we never delivered. So what are they counting on? They're counting on us thinking in our mind, well, we made this agreement, we were going to pay them, you know, uh, uh, we were going to pay them for the goods, right? Or uh, Um, actually, no, they paid us money and we were going to give them goods. We never gave them the goods. So we have to give them the money back, right? That agreement they're assuming you're going to think in your mind is still a valid agreement. It creates an obligation for us to pay them back now. And I'm saying, no, this is just not the case, right? Because why is it? This agreement that they're asserting is still valid was nullified. And you could say it's nullified for a couple of reasons. There's some people on my Facebook thread over on my personal page. You can just follow me on Facebook if you want any peek off. But um, some people over there have been arguing some of the points. My main point was that Iran has done things to United States that would invalidate any sort of contractual agreement that we had with them. So they took us, you know, took all these hostages and they also were state sponsors of terrorism for all sorts of attacks over the intervening decades. Here we are in 2016, and we're going to say that that agreement that was made way back before the revolution, that it's something that's valid that we should still honor. So there's that. It's, it's you know, what has the country done? Uh, other people in the thread, in the Facebook thread, were talking about the fact that the government has um, – definitely changed uh, since then, right? So it was the Shah that we had negotiated this agreement with. And now we've got, of course, the Ayatollahs and presidents and whatever complex structure of theocracy that they essentially have over there, essentially a, a theocratic rule, uh, you know, it was more of a monarchy, and now it's more theocratic. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just invalid, that agreement that you need to give us a reason why we should think that that agreement is valid. And the New York times gives you absolutely none. You are just supposed to, as a good reader go, Oh yeah, we made an agreement. Um, So let, let me just kind of get you, uh, you know, kind of back to the the definition of the arbitrary again, an arbitrary statement is one for which there is no evidence. And you could say, okay, well, Amy, there is some evidence here, right? Because they're saying, well, look, we had this agreement. But it is so easy to invalidate that agreement. I mean, any of us could think about and question the validity of that agreement, that I would say that the assertion that there's any kind of an agreement there, right? So they say, look, we have a reason that it's not ransom payment, it's something else, that we owed the money. Why? Because there was agreement way back when, and we didn't make good on the agreement, so we owe money pursuant to that. I would say that 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 agreement is valid and that we owe money on it, that that statement is arbitrary, and we're just supposed to accept it. We're just supposed to stomach it and go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with the pre-revolutionary, pre-hostage-taking Shah or whether we're dealing with the militant Ayatollahs who have Condoned and encouraged the taking of American hostages for decades in addition to sponsoring other attacks on the United States. But according to New York Times, you're just supposed to accept this assertion that, yeah, you know, we owe them money. Um, Arjun in the chat room says Iran literally doesn't have a right to exist. Yeah, I mean, certainly we should not be respecting any agreements with Iran? Not at all. And and you know this idea that we somehow owed them the money and that you cannot see this as a ransom payment is just completely ridiculous. Um, yeah, forget the contracts, says Arjun. Yeah, do not do not respect those at all. And any of the weapons that we would have given, yeah, the weapons uh, wouldn't. Those weapons have been used in opposition to. The current regime, yeah, maybe the weapons would have been used to defend right the Shah against the current regime, but I guess not delivered in time to make a difference, yeah. Um, And you know, of course, for me, that whole period in the in the seventies was a little bit before my news aware time. I was I was aware, of course, of the hostage crisis itself, and but you know, more I became more conscious of politics under. The presidency of Reagan and, and later than that. So, you know, the whole time leading up to that hostage crisis, I'm not as as well aware of. But yeah, so you see these two examples here of the arbitrary in the news. On the one hand, you have in New York, the city government of New York seems very eager to throw out the arbitrary assertion of hate crime when you're killing an imam. And then here you have the arbitrary assertion that we owed a debt to Iran, according to some prior agreement, an agreement that we can easily discuss as being invalidated by the subsequent actions of Iran. You know, again, if and we've talked about this on, on the show before, you make an agreement with somebody. It's like Ted Cruz's pledge, right, his pledge to support Donald Trump. That pledge is not going to survive all subsequent horrible, atrocious actions by Donald Trump that pledge can be invalidated by Donald Trump for example saying it was invalidated that pledge can be invalidated by some of the actions that Donald Trump subsequently took with respect to Cruz's wife and uh, assertions about Cruz's father and all that stuff right so similarly New York Times can't get away with just saying oh yeah you know there was this prior agreement and therefore we must respect all prior agreements it is ridiculous. But do do watch earnest, right? Because this earnest press briefing happened before the you know media outlets basically forced the government finally, or it was probably Congress that forced the government to concede that it was at least leverage. You're, not, you're still not supposed to call it a, a ransom payment, but now we're going to call it leverage and try to say it's not a ransom payment. It is ridiculous. Um, the word optics was used by the journalist in, in that video. And it is the optic optics are terrible. The optics are going to encourage anyone on the ground in these Muslim countries that are hostile to us to go ahead and just start taking American or Western hostages as much as you can, because there's money in it. You're going to get something out of us because now we're dealing with them. And it is frightening and scary. So definitely. Now, what's what's the third story? And I hope you guys are following me through this kind of interweaving of the substance of the stories and this point that I'm trying to make up about the arbitrary. I've got three examples and two stories so far. And then I've got this one that was just handed to me, thankfully, by Rob Abiera. I'm kind of wondering if Rob Abiera is a psychic of some kind. I don't know. He was reading my mind this week because he sent me a link to this Atlantic piece. And the headline is, what Michael Moore and Donald Trump have in common, subheading is, making controversial claims without providing evidence gets attention, and it's also reckless, they say. And you know, this, is, this is Claire Foran, is the author of this piece published August 18th, so just yesterday. Michael Moore, she says, has a theory about Donald Trump. The Republican nominee never wanted to be president, and he is now sabotaging his campaign as a way to get out of the race. Now, raise your hand in the chat room if you're guilty of thinking this about Donald Trump. And then the question will be, if you are guilty of thinking this about Donald Trump, what is your evidence? That's what I know. Oh, people are saying... uh, Go ahead, watch even past my suggested editing point of 35 minutes in that video. Keep going. You know, actually, the friend who sent me that was suggesting stopping at about 34, I mean, 44, right? So 38 to 44, and I'm, you know, 45, it's good. It's probably even good after that as well. So you can keep watching. It's, it's fun to watch Ernest squirm about this, knowing, you know, in a few days what actually happens. You know, he says he's telling the truth, and then we see that they're forced to admit that he really wasn't. I don't know how these guys can survive their job. Um, but yeah, so, so back to this, uh, this point about Trump, Tim says, I agree with more that this is all that Donald Trump is wanting to do. Now, what is the evidence for this though? You're going to say it's circumstantial that you just simply couldn't believe that somebody who behaves the way that Donald Trump has behaved would actually have wanted to be president. Is that the sort of claim that we're making here? Um, you know, what, what is the evidence? What Ferran argues here is that he doesn't really have any evidence for it. That he's making arbitrary assertions about this. Uh, quote from Moore, Donald Trump never actually wanted to be president of the United States. I know this for a fact. End quote. The well-known documentary uh, filmmaker wrote on his website earlier this week. Moore does not offer concrete evidence for his claim. Quote, I'm not going to say how I know it, he wrote. So basically, she says, if you want to believe what he has to say, you have to trust him. The claims have been shared thousands of times on social media, reprinted in media outlets, including Huffington Post and CNBC. It's the latest in a series of high-profile statements Moore has made about Trump. He recently penned an open letter to Ivanka Trump imploring her to intervention as her father's, quote, comments and behavior have become more and more bizarre and detached from reality, end quote. Now, at least there, right, with that one, you're looking at the substance of the statements in making whatever the claim is. In May, uh, she writes, Moore told Bill Maher, quote, you and I are going to take him down on an episode of uh, HBO's Real Time, uh, quote, and and then he says, no, seriously, this is the end of Donald Trump. Yet more, she says, a liberal activist who supported Bernie Sanders during the primary race has demonstrated that he has something in common with Trump. He and the Republican presidential nominee are both willing to present controversial yet unsubstantiated claims as fact, even when doing so may be reckless. Moore tells quite a story, she writes. He claims that Trump decided to run for president not because he thought he would win, but because he was, quote, unhappy with his deal as host and star of the NBC show, quote, The Apprentice, and hoped to strengthen his negotiating position. The plan went horribly wrong, however, when NBC instead cut ties over Trump's remarks about Mexican immigrants. By the time Trump realized he would actually become the nominee, running for president was no longer looking appealing to him. Moore then suggests that recent controversies caused by Trump On the campaign trail May be quote All part of his new strategy To get the hell out of a race He never intended to see through to its end End quote Now I would argue that there's some evidence To the contrary out there right? Uh, Trump seems to be Thoughtfully appointing Or okay I'm not even going to say thoughtfully Because I don't know what, it, what the inner processes Of Trump's mind are And it's very hard to tell what those are given what he tweets out in the world, but the people, some of the people who are being appointed to his various committees as economic advisors and other types of advisors are good. And what the rumor is that it would be Trey Gowdy as attorney general, that would be very good. So these are some good people. I don't know that if he wasn't serious, that he would have appointed these decent quality people at least. Right. Uh, What his plans are to do with them and how much they're all going to be subject to his arbitrary whim, which could change with his mood and be very scary. I don't know. But if they're good people, then I guess they would resign rather than do anything too horrible. So, you know, again, we could we could start talking about is there any hope at all? See, would be okay. (sighs) What I do know is that there is at least some evidence that Trump has intentions to actually try to be president as opposed to merely running as a publicity stunt. And that now really all he's trying to do is get out of the race because now, you know, in recent weeks, he's been naming people to as advisors and things like this and naming what a lot of people are thinking are are decent people. So it just doesn't seem consistent with, um, you know, with Moore's story. And in fact, one of the things that Leonard Peikoff talks about in this, um, you know, this uh, this little section on the arbitrary. Again, let me get back to it. It's around page 165 or so. And in my enthusiasm, yeah, so 164 is where I was reading from before. But he says uh, in one of the paragraphs here that one of the things that you can do, right, one of the things that you can do is that you can actually disprove something by having proof of its contrary right and this is on page 168 he says one can infer from any truth the falsehood of its contradictories so for example uh, Leonard Peikoff writes quote X was in New York during the Dallas shooting of Y and quote from that the truth of that one can infer the falsehood of X shot Y right so once you have an alibi of course, that's going to contradict any sort of assertion about you being guilty of a particular crime. So if I give you some evidence that Trump is taking actions that are consistent with somebody who's serious about becoming president, then an assertion that says, well, he's got absolutely no intention to become president, it was just all a stunt, that seems like it's going to be false. Now, we could talk about How much evidence have I given you by talking about these appointees when he says all, you know, Trump goes around saying all these horribly irresponsible things and acts like somebody who's not serious? We could talk about what level of proof we have, but I have some proof. And all that Moore is talking about is arbitrary speculation. He doesn't say that he heard a conversation that Trump had saying that he was unhappy about the deal um, or that he saw an email or anything at all. There is just a speculation. It's what some people in objectivism might call psychologizing about what Trump's motives actually are. So, you know, Moore provides no evidence. I provide some evidence that Trump might be serious about this. And I would say I invalidate his claim. Right. You know, he's going to have to provide some evidence for his claim before He can even hope to be taken seriously at all. Now, mind you, um, and and this is when you start to get into the discussion of the arbitrary as such, and, and why do we care about this, right? Why do we care that we've got the New York Times repeating arbitrary assertions about a hate crime in the case of the shooting of the imam in Queens, right? Or why do we care about you know, whether or not a particular statement is arbitrary and earnest trying to dismiss something as arbitrary when it's actually not arbitrary, right? To say that something that isn't arbitrary is, or why do we care, for example, that the New York times thinks that it can get, get away with asserting that we, you know, have this duty to pay Iran back for a long time ago, decades old deal that has long since been invalidated. That They can just arbitrarily assert, uh, the claim that that deal imposes a duty on us. Why do we care about this? Why do we care that Michael Moore is going over there, you know, going around making arbitrary assertions about Trump? I mean, I don't like Trump, but why is it a bad thing that Michael Moore is making arbitrary assertions about Trump and getting attention of serious news outlets, you know, news outlets that people take seriously anyway, like the Huffington Post and CNBC are a couple of the outlets that are cited in this Atlantic piece. Why do we care? And this is where I think, you know, if you do want to get this book, Objectivism Philosophy of Ayn Rand, I think quite valuable, um, this section that Leonard has on the arbitrary is really helpful because what he talks about in here is the fact that if somebody makes an arbitrary assertion, And again, an arbitrary assertion is one for which the person provides no evidence or and I'm going to make a little bit of amendment. And this is an amendment I recall Leonard making in here, but I don't have the particular citation. If somebody does give you a little bit of evidence for something, but it's evidence that's, you know, easily swept away or you have swept it away, then you have reduced it now to the statement, you know, to the status of the arbitrary. You know, so when The New York Times puts its feeble argument up there that there's this agreement from Iran that poses a duty on on us that statement itself is essentially arbitrary i would think based on commonly held knowledge so they need to put forth some argument for this right but you know once you've swept away all of this that there's evidence that this is not a ransom payment they you know they're trying to say there's evidence this wasn't a ransom payment i say that that's a completely arbitrary assertion that there is no evidence that they need to come forth with more otherwise it just has this status so then what are you supposed to do with it right what are you supposed to do with these arbitrary claims why is it so bad that the new york times is making these arbitrary assertions that josh earnest is pretending he understands what the arbitrary is but he doesn't and that michael moore is making these arbitrary statements and he's being taken seriously and repeated on these other outlets and the whole internet is buzzing with michael moore's theory well he said it and so it must be right or something like that why is this a problem it is because the arbitrary should be completely dismissed from your mind the arbitrary writes leonard Peikoff, is neither true nor false it has absolutely no Status. If somebody tells you something, you know, I say, okay, there are green gremlins in the back of the room over there and they're making ice cream. Now, obviously you would identify that very easily as an instance of the arbitrary, right? You, you don't know anything about a green gremlin, certainly gremlins that make ice cream. And I just say it's back there and I don't have any evidence for it at all, right? What would you do? You would be very healthy and dismiss it. But what we don't do often enough, is dismiss these arbitrary claims that are made by the media or you know and like i said in the case of that Ernest, you know accusing republicans of being arbitrary we don't have a clear understanding of what the arbitrary is and that makes Ernest think he can get away with saying what he said to the journalist to say that there's no new piece of information that makes it look any more like a ransom from the fact that we saw the plane arrive late at night with the cash and the, you know, no, there was, there was something there. Um, And, and so we need to know the difference. We need to know the difference between there being something there, some actual evidence, And not because if there isn't any actual evidence, what is it that you should do in terms of your own mental functioning and health in terms of you keeping in touch with reality, using your reason to go about your life and live your life and make decisions? You need to dismiss the arbitrary, you need to dismiss it completely. Um, I'll give you an example of where I can sometimes be found guilty of it. And in fact, a listener to the show, and I can't remember who it was, so I'm sorry, I'm not going to credit you properly. Um, that, that, you know, there are things out there that I get sucked into. And so I'm very health conscious and I could go into a whole song and dance about why, but I'm I'm a health conscious person. So when you see these articles in these newspapers and what they'll do is they'll take one study in some medical journal, and the study will maybe show a plausible link between exercise and some great benefit for your life, or it'll show a link between, you know, like sitting too much and you're going to get cancer, or whatever it is. They'll make assertions about what that particular study proves that are essentially baseless. Journalists love to do this, they love to get these headlines going about. You know, how exercise is great for you. Why? Because everybody kind of thinks, yeah, we should all exercise. And so, you know, you can go ahead and get away with a headline that doesn't have any basis, really, in fact. And they say, well, you know, it's based on this study. Well, the fact that it's, quote, based on a study, if there is no logical connection between what the study actually asserts and the claim that you're trying to make, no. You still are making a completely arbitrary claim, even if you can talk about a study that seems sort of kind of tangentially to be related to the claim that you're trying so many so many articles and and like i said recently i even shared one of these types of articles in the program notes why because i want to help you guys all be healthy too in addition to me and i think okay we're in this for the long term obamacare is going up in flames and we all need to be healthy who knows what kind of medical care we're going to get um so i do this you know a listener came back and said look these stories they just have nothing to it i think it was someone on twitter by the way so maybe you could go find the person on twitter but yeah they they just do this they just throw it out there people suck it up right and and they don't do what you're supposed to do which is you are supposed to ruthlessly dismiss these arbitrary statements you need to identify whether there's any evidence for what it is that they're saying you need to dismiss it from all thought. Don't worry about it. Don't give it any credence. Don't make arguments based on it. You don't even have to argue against it. There is no obligation to argue against the arbitrary. Somebody has to actually give you some evidence first, right? And this is uh, goes back to a point that I was talking about earlier. One of the things that people do when they make an arbitrary assertion, they say, well, yeah, I can't prove it. But since you can't disprove it either, therefore... You need to think that it's possible. And what Leonard Peikoff points out and what a lot of us need to, you know, just think about a little bit more, think about what sort of standards you want to have before you let a claim into your mind, right? Think about whether there's any evidence for that claim. And if there isn't any evidence, any concrete evidence being offered for it, you should dismiss it. You shouldn't worry about it. You know, another type of article that's out there is not just the arbitrary exercises, great article, but it's also the, wow, you should be really worried about the latest scare. And I I didn't even go to Dredge Report, but I should. Dredge Report almost every day has some sort of sensational story about the latest thing that you should be really worried about. And it could be that the particular danger does actually exist somewhere, but what he's hoping is that you, even though you, you know, maybe you live thousands of miles away from wherever the danger is, and you have absolutely no reason wherever you are to be worrying about it, he wants to get you worrying. Why? Because worrying makes you click and browse his page, and he gets a lot of traffic, he makes a lot of money from it. Um, you should not, right? And, and if you did, if you accepted the arbitrary assertions that are out there, you'd spend your whole life worrying And arguing against things needlessly so what is the proper attitude toward the arbitrary you need to self-righteously self-consciously happily dismiss those claims for what they are for having no evidence you need to demand the presentation of at least some evidence before you accept that the claim is even possibly true right there's arbitrary possibilities as well. People say, well, it's possible. At least admit that it's possible. And actually no. Um, people in yeah, people are talking about also look at Greg Salmieri's courses on epistemology at the Ayn Rand eStore, and they put a link here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio. A lot of Greg Salmieri's work is excellent, so I would highly recommend it. And I like, you know, that the theme of many of his recent conference lectures have been in effect practical epistemology. And what is epistemology? That sounds like a mouth, a mouthful. Um, Epistemology is just the branch of philosophy that tells you the means, what, you know, what the means are of human knowledge and essentially how to exercise our mental faculties in order to gain knowledge about the world. So do look at that. Um, Tim says some circumstantial evidence could be sufficient to say that there is a possibility. Right. And and you could say, yes, some circumstantial evidence, but then you need to point out that evidence. And I would say, you know, the idea that Trump is not at all serious about being president. I think that that can be refuted. Uh, you know, we, of course, we could have a, deb- a debate about this too, but he should not be able to just go out there and say, well, here it is and here it is and not lay out his, evidence you know yeah he had this show and yeah maybe he was trying to negotiate a new deal but he didn't talk about any particular communications that Trump was unhappy with a particular deal and, and all this kind of stuff and that's the type of evidence that you would need and then you know we could talk in the in the chat room too if you really want to get into a, a whole thing you could talk about what is circumstantial evidence and what is not let me give you the classic example from Atlas Shrugged, Uh, Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, of asserting the arbitrary. So again, twice in one show, I'm going to be reading out of a book to you, but hold on one second. Okay, grabbing my big old volume of Atlas Shrugged here. And if you remember, we have got, you know, Dagny Taggart is going to get rails of reared in metal ordered for her rail. So it becomes very important to, you know, basically know that and Metal is good and it, it's important to the public perception of Taggart Transcontinental using this and Metal, right? You know, their, and, and their thoughts on the safety of riding on rails of Reardon Metal. It matters whether they think that and Metal is a solid, safe product or not. And What Eddie Willers and Dagny are talking about, and this is page 183 to 184 in the edition that I have of Atlas Shrugged, uh, it's the State Science Institute's statement on Reardon Metal. The the State Science Institute warned everybody against the use of Reardon Metal, and they say, you know, it was on the radio, in the afternoon papers, et cetera. And uh, she asked, Dagny asked Eddie, what did they say? And he says, Dagny, they didn't say it. They haven't really said it, yet it's there, and it isn't. He says, that's what's monstrous about it. And he was, you know, trying to not be emotional, et cetera. And, you know, she says, what did they say? You know, you you actually have to read it. And so here is the quotation from the statement of the State Science Institute warning you against the use of Reardon Metal. Listen to this. They say, quote, it may be possible. That after a period of heavy usage, a sudden fissure may appear, though the length of this period cannot be predicted. The possibility of a molecular reaction at present unknown cannot be entirely discounted, right? Can't be disproved. Although the tensile strength of the metal is obviously demonstrable, certain questions in regard to its behavior under unusual stress are not to be ruled out. Although there is no evidence to support the contention that the use of the metal should be prohibited, a further study of its properties would be of value. End quote. And Eddie says, we can't fight it. It can't be answered. And that's true, right? In the sense that it can't be answered. There's nothing to say what, these people depend on, right? The people who are foisting the arbitrary on you, they depend on the fact that you're going to accept these assertions, especially if it's just talking about a possibility, don't rule out the possibility. You're going to accept them. You're going to internalize them. You're going to make decisions. You're going to have feelings based on them. You're going to give these statements credence and you know, since there's nothing you can really say against it because they haven't provided any evidence, right? It's all arbitrary. You can't answer it. You know, like I said, if, if they provide some little bit of evidence that at least you can counter that. And, you know, like I say, I think Michael Moore is providing maybe a little bit of circumstantial evidence about his Trump thesis. But I think the idea that he's not a serious candidate can be countered by evidence that we do have of solid things that Trump has done that are consistent with somebody who actually wants to be president. So, um, you know, here in, in the, you know, in the fiction in Atlas shrugged, it's completely unanswerable. There's no evidence being offered. She provides a perfect dramatization of an assertion of the arbitrary and its ability to do damage in a culture that doesn't fully understand the issue. So again, what do you do? You look at these claims that people are making and ask yourself, is there any evidence at all being offered for it? And then if you realize that there isn't any evidence being offered for it, try if you can. So it's, It can be difficult. Sometimes. I'm not saying that this is always easy, but try to have the mental discipline to dismiss that because insofar as you let these arbitrary assertions into your mind and, and you consider them as, as being possible, you entertain them you're using up your mind on something that just has no status in the world. It's got no relation. Um, In the chat room, someone is sharing a link to an article or a little uh, blog entry written by Ben bear on this exact issue. So you could check that out as well. If you're over here in the chat room at blog talk radio live. Um, Yeah. So given my sensitivity to this issue of the arbitrary, of course, like I said, sometimes I'm, I need a refresher. I need a refresher on this stuff sometimes, particularly when I'm reading all these health articles out there and I want to be healthy and all of that. It's tempting to look at these claims about what exercise can do for you, for example, and start acting on it. When in fact it's probably the case that the, you know, what we've known about exercise for, quite a bit longer is, is a, is a little better. And you don't really need to go, you know, totally kill yourself with exercise. You just need to do and everything in, in moderation approach. Um, by the way, speaking of exercise, I went yesterday to a local beach and this is one of these beaches and there's probably more like this around the world, but this one has a bunch of steps. So there's a whole ton of steps to go down to this beach. When I, when I went up is when I counted the steps. When I went down, it's kind of steep and you just want to hold on the rail and make sure that you're not going to topple down these, these stairs. Uh, when you go up, of course, you're more conscious of the effort and the figure, okay, good time to count. It was somewhat over 200 steps on the way back up. And I actually noticed today is like, I'm actually a little sore from doing this. this is, okay. This is a good workout. Do this again. Um, you know, but what, what do you need to do? You know, you just do, you know, a bit of walking or aerobic per week. Don't overdo that stuff. And every expert that I know says, if you do the proper high intensity workout, even just once a week, you can build muscle strength. And I have seen evidence myself and my own friends who go only once a week and build up tremendous strength. Just based on that Uh, one time per week, half an hour, 40 minutes. Uh, of course, a lot of times you want to do this under proper supervision and stuff, but look into high-intensity training. Uh medex equipment is, is quite good. So that's something that I hope to get back to as my journey of return to health continues myself. So there's my little spiel on health. Now, why do we want to think about our health so intently? Let me look at the very next entry here with you on the program notes. Again, the program notes can be found over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com and I have a few more articles I want to discuss the next one is relevant to this health issue it's one of the reasons that I'm pretty conscious about my health I study up on supplements that I take and I take them yeah my friends are going to make fun of me about that but whatever Um, here's the headline and this is again from New York Times New York Times can be surprising in the objectivity of the reporting what it allows here This is under the Public Health section of New York Times, written by Margot Sanger-Katz, published today. Headline, Think Your Obamacare Plan Will Be Like Employer Coverage? Think Again. And she writes, When Obamacare was developed, one goal was to allow middle-class Americans to use the new marketplaces to buy the same kind of health insurance they had at their jobs. People could retire early. Or quit a corporate job and become a freelancer and still have the great care and financial protection that come with high end plans. But six years into the law, can you believe it's been six years? I can and I can't. Six years, the reality is that a typical Obamacare plan looks more like Medicaid, only with a high deductible. The typical marketplace plan covers a small number of low-cost doctors and hospitals, and offers fewer frills than employer plans. The recent high-profile exits of many of the national insurers from markets around the country will only heighten the shift. And then she says, well, maybe the change in norms is not all bad. It's the preferences of Obamacare's uh, consumers. Why? Because they're shopping aggressively for the most affordable health insurance they can find. Now, is is that good? I mean, are we, that we're doing it basically because as far as I can tell, we're fully cash strapped, right? I mean, I think that's really the reason is that so many people in the United States are cash strapped. So they have no choice but to purchase the cheaper plans. It's not like that that's what they would want to do if our economy was in better shape, you know. Um, and, and we've talked also about what Obamacare is calling insurance before how it's not really insurance at all, that it's uh, it's like buying a prepaid voucher for some healthcare that you may or may not use. And most likely the healthcare that you are going to use, they're going to pay for only a small fraction of it. And you're going to be hit with bills for everything else. I had that experience last year. I don't even have a marketplace plan. I have an individual, what they call PPO I hope I'm going to be able to do it again next year. Who knows, right. If these are going to continue, but I have an individual PPO. That's not nearly as you know, generous as an, an employer plan, but I thought it'd be pretty good. And with my kidney surgery last year, thousands and thousands of dollars in medical bills, I had to end up paying on top of an expensive insurance payment each month. So it, it's ridiculous what Obamacare has done to health insurance prices. Um, so, you know what's going to happen in the coming years. Right now, it looks like more and more of these individual plan, you know, companies, the companies that are involving uh, offering the individual plans, they're going to be moving out of the market. I don't know whether the PPOs, like the kind that I prefer to buy and not get shoved in the marketplace, if those are going to continue to exist. What I do know is, if you are forced into Obamacare, you are essentially enrolling in Medicaid early. That's what you're doing. Now your other option could be to quote self-insure. So just don't buy insurance, pay whatever the fine is that they're going to tax you. It's going to increase every single year. You're going you have to pay a fine in order to go uninsured and insure yourself to avoid being on what is essentially Medicaid. That is the state of healthcare today unless you're with an employer. And of course, over the next several years, if you have an employer plan, your employer plan is going to get stripped down to look more and more like Medicaid. Why? Because eventually they're going to let that Cadillac tax, the so-called Cadillac tax kick in and they're going to gut the awesome employer provided plans as well. One friend of mine, when I posted this on Facebook, she commented that they have now essentially made it impossible for you to leave your job to, you know, remember the whole thing was, well, you need to be able to leave your job and keep your health care, and now you cannot do that unless you want to be on what is essentially Medicaid when you're way too young even to be on Medicaid. I mean, you could say, okay, well, okay, I'm okay if I'm on Medicaid when I'm older. I'm not okay with that anyway, even when you're older, but imagine now we're being forced into what is essentially Medicaid decades earlier. It is truly, truly horrific. Um Government marketplace in the chat room, a contradiction in terms, says motive power. Yes, it definitely is. You know, you, it was really, really criminal the way that Obama would use the language of the free market in, you know, pushing Obamacare on all of us and basically pulling the wool over our eyes and everything else. Arjun says Obamacare has to be repealed ASAP because the more hurt it causes, the more they'll blame the private industry involved, and this will hand universal health care to them on a platter. Yeah, you know, is, is this the issue that would get you to actually vote for the arbitrary candidate Trump because you know for certain that Hillary Clinton is going to bring us into full bore, whatever you call it full socialized medicine, full single payer, that she would use a Clinton presidency to make sure that that happened, that the last nail was in the coffin of the American health care industry. It, it, you know, again, we have several weeks before we have to vote. Who knows where we're going to go. But this is really scary. This is very, very scary, because the only chance that we really have, I think, to have a full Obamacare repeal was under Ted Cruz. I don't know that Donald Trump would listen to those people who want to fully repeal it. Uh, You know, but again, this kind of story with the horror stories about the type of care that we're going to be getting the limitation on the doctors and the hospitals and everything else you can go to all of those doctors and hospitals, maybe some of them are going to retire, right? Because there's not going to be enough people who could even, you know, have the insurance plans that they want to have, come to their office there's doctors who say i'll only take ppos for example only ppos because only they provide enough compensation for the doctors to be worth their time to see you are those doctors gonna be able to stay in business are the hospitals gonna be able to stay in business or maybe suddenly they're going to have to cut costs and those hospitals that you wanted to get into because they were so good they're going to have to downgrade what they offer in order to survive. And there's not going to be any good hospitals left anymore. Um, Are we going to be able to continue to buy private health care? Who knows? So this is the scary type of stuff that will get you thinking about your health and will make you a little predisposed to accept the arbitrary assertions that go around in these health articles out there. We do have to be careful about it nonetheless. A few more stories over at the blog at DontLetItGo.com that I wanted to share with you. One is, you know, a a story that I thought was pretty horrific. New York Times presented it as just a little bit of interest, sort of sideline piece about the Rio Olympics this year. And, you know, by the way, you know, we could talk about was the assertion of the swimmers about being held up with the burglary. Was that arbitrary or not? I, I think that one's too messy to even make an example out of, but you know, boy, there's been some interesting news coming out of there this week. But this piece that I've shared with you, the headline is who decides where each country lives in the athlete's village? And it's probably what you would expect if you had thought about it a little bit, that there's somebody who has to figure out where in the athlete's village, all these apartment buildings, you're going to house all the athletes from all the various countries And that you would, you know, as if you were figuring out the seating for a wedding or something, you would put next to each other people who are probably going to get along and not fight with each other. And, you know, that it's very, very political and that you have to be a genius in order to mastermind where you're going to put all these different countries' athletes in this village and have them peacefully coexist, right? Uh, So there's that. It's kind of sad that it's that way because the Olympics, the whole spirit is supposed to be that everyone's supposed to put all of this politics aside. And, you know, these are athletes. They're supposed to be, you know, sort of separate from that. Um, But it doesn't always get fully separate. And the thing that struck me in this piece is when they talk about the fact that there are two countries, two countries that, unlike all the other countries, are unable to hang outside of the apartments that they're occupying. They cannot hang outside their apartments, their flag or the name of their country or anything for safety reasons. And which two countries is that? It is United States and Israel. You may have guessed that without even looking at the article, but I find it horrific that here we are in the 21st century. Here we are right? You know, 9-11 was in 2001, we are 15 years later, just about, right? And we cannot get this handle on terrorism, Islamic terrorism, enough to keep Olympic athletes safe so that they could show national pride, for example, by displaying their flag or, you know, proudly showing off what country they're from. It is, it is horrible, you know, the Two of the best countries there United States And Israel have to hide For fear of safety And they're giving credence to this I mean why not say okay let's display it But give them extra security at least Or something I don't know you know but what This, this just shows you what our government has done And indeed you can tie this To the Earlier story that I had about The ransom payment right To the extent that that 400 million is legitimately seen as a ransom payment. We are going to ensure that things like this, where the Olympic athletes can't even display the flag from their own country, if you're from United States or Israel, stuff like that is just going to continue on and on and on throughout our lifetimes. And it's it's just, it's really sad. Fiona in the chat room says that the UK government also panders to Islam. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else. Who are they talking about in here? Oh, Teresa May is better than Cameron, but they're saying no, that she's also pandering and stuff. These are probably going to be things that we can take up in a future show. Um, We are getting towards the end, so maybe I should zoom over to the, the program notes. You know, here I am. I've been over here in the chat room the whole time. I haven't told you guys to call in at all. I've been talking on my own. And what I've done, I guess, and this is completely inadvertent, I promise. But let me tell you what the next story is right here. NPR, and this is sent to me by Rob Abiera, by the way. So, again, thanks, Rob, for this. NPR website to get rid of comments. Now, I haven't gotten rid of comments because I'm reading some stuff from the chat room, right? But I did not even invite you to call in today. That was a little bit sad. I just talked and talked and talked. I hope you didn't mind. Uh, You can call in if you want to take the last couple of minutes or so, 760-888-5817, 760-888-5817. It really was inadvertent, but NPR apparently is deciding that they're going to um, just obliterate comments. And and I've heard discussions out there about this, that they want to just get rid of comment sections on websites that distribute content about news and, other subjects. It says NPR is making an announcement today that was August 17th that it is sh- that is sure to upset a loyal core of its audience, those who comment online at npr.org. It says as of August 23rd, online comments, a feature of the site since 2008, will be disabled. With the change NPR joins a long list of other news organizations choosing to move conversations about its journalism off its own site and instead rely on social media to pick up the slack. But NPR stands for national public radio. By the way, this is written by Elizabeth Jensen. So she, this is her point of view here. Uh, It stands for national public radio. So a decision to limit public input at NPR.org seems especially jarring. Yeah. And I would agree. Uh, She says the decision should not be taken to mean that NPR does not value audience engagement. Says Scott Montgomery quote, We've been working on audience engagement, user connections, in a variety of ways for many, many years. Certainly going back to even before the internet. It is part of public media. It's important to us. He told me. But she writes at this point, uh, he argued that the audience itself has decided for NPR, choosing to engage much more via social media, primarily on Twitter and Facebook, rather than in npr.org comments section. And here's a quote from Montgomery. He says, we've reached the point where we've realized that there are other better ways to achieve the same kind of community discussion around the issues we raise in our journalism, he said, with money and spending it efficiently part of the issue. More than 5 million people each month engage with NPR on Twitter compared to just a fraction of that number in the npr.org comments. He says, quote, in relative terms, we just Just uh, as we set priorities, he says, it becomes increasingly clear that the market has spoken. This is where people want to engage with us, so that's what we're going to emphasize, end quote, he said. Um, By the way, I love, I do love how you can engage with people on Twitter, especially companies, right? Companies who want your business. So um, Under Armour, right? I gave you guys the example last week where Under Armour had that great ad with Michael Phelps. And, um, you know, the slogan is rule yourself. And then I go over to Under Armour's website looking for some sort of cute little, you know, T-shirt or whatever that says rule yourself that I can wear. And it's got to be cute. It's got to be sexy. It's got to be awesome. Um, and they have nothing. They have no, uh, not even for men, I don't think they have T-shirts that say rule yourself. And you think, you know, they unleash this awesome campaign with this awesome slogan. They need to have some piece of clothing that they're selling that you can buy that's got that slogan on it because it's, it's too good so I tweet out to them hey Under Armour right you know you should have this and someone from Under Armour writes back and says oh that's a good idea well you know now whether they're actually going to talk to whoever their production team is and do something about this and make me the cute shirt they should give it to me by the way I should have a sponsorship arrangement with them or something, right? I'll do the picture. I'll, you know, whenever people give me the cool t-shirts, I do. I do the little picture. It's like an excuse to do a new selfie. So, um, yeah. So, you know, send me the t-shirt. I'll, I'll do the selfie, right? And uh, that would be great. But the, you know, the point being is that you can engage. And yeah, you could engage with NPR. You can engage with me on Twitter, by the way, at Amy Peacock on Twitter. Go ahead and follow me there and tweet to me. I do look at those. Sometimes I'm not. On Twitter as much as Facebook. I tend to be on Facebook a little bit more. So yeah, follow and comment on Facebook when I've got the public posts either on my own page or on the don't let it go unheard page on Facebook as well. But yeah, social media is increasingly becoming this way that we interact. So I see it. Um, It takes resources, especially to moderate comment sections, right? If you have a blog and you want to moderate And you want to make sure that rude or otherwise horrible comments aren't actually going to be there you want to delete them you have to pay somebody to to monitor all that so that's another thing too and and just you know the hosting of the comments disk space usually isn't that bad of a a thing server space and stuff but there might be a bandwidth issue Uh, getting things to load right getting those long streams of comments to load properly that, that could discourage people if the page takes forever to load because of all the whole comment section, then they're not going to actually read your article and you want them to read your article. So there's there's a lot of reasons for this, but it is a trend, something to think about. I kind of put it there as second to last because it's neither bad nor necessarily good. It's just something to see in terms of a trend in the way that people are talking about content out there. And then finally, I've got the last but before I have that, let me see if anybody took me up on my invitation to call in. Nope, nobody called in. They did not. Um, what are we talking about here? Oh, <laughs> just to yourself. Okay. I don't know what you guys are doing here in the chat room. Uh, Fiona says, of late with how bad the mainstream media has blatantly been, she says, I must admit that I do check the headlines with uh, several of them for just a, a chuckle. That's what she does. Okay. Um Yeah, talking about the the UK and everything else in there as well. Okay, one more story. Again, over the blog don'tletitgo.com. dot com. This is good news, but it's also news that I hadn't really thought about the full implications of. And you've heard over the past few years that self driving cars are on the way. And it's always self driving cars that you tend to hear about in the news. And the headline that my friend Brian Yoder shared uh, to this, you know, the story that he shared is this. Uber's first self driving cars will start picking up passengers this month. This month. And at least in the click that I just gave it, it says it was posted yesterday by John Russell. This blog entry over at techcrunch.com it says it's been a while since news broke in early 2015 that Uber was working on self driving cars. Earlier this year, the company openly admitted it was testing cars in Pittsburgh, but we haven't heard much more over the last 18 months. And they say, with Google, the self-driving car leader, slowly making progress with its autonomous cars, you'd be forgiven for thinking Uber's efforts are far behind and barely visible in its frenemies' rearview mirror. And they say, well, think again, it turns out that Uber has been making very rapid progress on its plan to replace its 1 million plus drivers with computers, they say bad news if you're an Uber driver. I mean, imagine this. They have revolutionized the delivery of essentially taxi services, right? You know? um, they've revolutionized that industry, even with human drivers. But then imagine it's going to be a whole nother revolution when you don't even have the driver at all. It's a completely computer-driven car. Say in an interview with Bloomberg, CEO Travis Kalanick revealed that the company is preparing to add self-driving cars to its fleet of active drivers in Pittsburgh as soon as this month. Some people were joking. It's like, look, Ocon is going to be there next year, so let's go ahead and uh, get some computer Uber cars. Anyway, the way they're doing it now is they're going to deploy these 100 modified Volvo XC90s that have the self-driving mechanisms in them. And if you happen to just, you know, ask for an Uber car in Pittsburgh and you happen to get one of these, then your ride will be free because this is like they're testing this. So you're a little bit of a guinea pig and you might be a little nervous about that, but I don't want to focus on that. I don't want to focus on, should you be nervous if you're in a self-driving car, you want to focus on how cool is this when it works, because we're going to be confident that we've got human beings who are in touch with reality, who are mastering this technology and are going to make it work awesome. So anyway, you can check this out. If you're in Pittsburgh, you can test it for yourself. Of course, it's like a lottery. You hail a Uber, Uber, you hail a Uber and maybe you get, um, you know, one of these self driving cars and then you'll get a free ride. And and that's kind of cool too a free ride and a lot of stuff to Instagram and, and tweet out to your friends because you're one of the first. It's pretty awesome. I think i will definitely have to go out and try to hail an Uber next year. Oh, my God, I'm almost done. Um, I've got the 90-second woman in my ear right now, people. Um, Go look at this article. The thing that is promising is that they're going to bring self-driving technology to trucks. And if you know some of the history of trucking, how the trucking industry essentially put out of business the railroad industry, why? Because of the pressure of the unions that they put to basically make all the freight hauled by trucks, now the trucker unions are going to be out of business as well. They're going to be replaced by computers, just like the McDonald's cashiers who said that we deserve $15 an hour. Technology is saying, no, you don't. For much less than $15 an hour, for much less than whatever the truckers are charging for the hauls while they're doing their drugs to stay awake and everything else, you can have computers do this job. It is super exciting. We will be talking about this technology more in future shows. So, everyone, thanks for tuning in today. I am sorry I didn't give you the invitation to call in sooner. Thanks to everyone who participated over here in the chat room. I will talk to you at the same time next week. Again, that is 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific on Blog Talk Radio. Until then, have a good afternoon and weekend. Take care.